Welcome to the Choya Needles Show. This survival episode was recorded live on September 15, 2019 at Space Cowboy Books in Joshua Tree. So you will get to hear the wind and the traffic celebrating the release of issue 33 of Choya Needles with us. The event took place during the Morongo Basin Big Read Month, so you will hear each reader doing a personal take on the theme of survival. Turns out the readers were not introduced on the microphone during the show, so we have decided not to interrupt the reading with introductions. At the end of this episode, I'll remind you of the pieces read and who read them aloud. You'll also find a complete list in the show notes online at troyaneedles.com. So relax, close your eyes, and place yourself on the desert with us as Susan Rukeyser starts the party. I think everyone here probably knows me, but I'm Susan Rukeyser. I'm a writer and editor here in Joshua Tree. I'm excited to welcome you to this NEA Big Read Community Open Mic presented by Choya Needles. The Big Read is a program of the National Endowment for the Arts, and every year it sponsors events to draw communities together to read and be inspired by one extraordinary book. In this case, it is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. And we do have, those copies are free on the table, so please help yourself. Uh, please also help yourself to the refreshments. We have water, wine, uh, and homemade cookies by Cynthia Anderson that I personally recommend very highly. <laughs> um, so water, wine, cookies, books, I suppose on that list, only water is technically necessary for survival. But to quote Station Eleven, which in turn quotes Star Trek Voyager, survival is insufficient. The book asks what makes survival worth it? Station Eleven, which is set in the aftermath of civilization's collapse, is built around this question. Painted on a traveling Shakespeare troops caravan is the phrase, because survival is insufficient. Banding together to create community and celebrate music and theater is their answer to that question. What's yours? What does survival mean to you? And how many ways can you interpret survival? So with that, let's open up the mic. This is called A Poem of Thanks. Thanks to Susan Ruckheiser for giving her time to bless our community. Thanks to the Art Queen LLC and Space Cowboy for letting us use this beautiful space. Thanks to Marie of the Big Read for getting us out of our comfort zone and having Choya needles in every town in the basin. It's kind of fun. Thank you. Now I'm going to skip over to, there's a medication that's been developed by Pharmacon, or you know Big Pharma, and what it does is, is it makes a person more religious. <laughs> because the churches are so upset that people aren't believing things anymore, that they paid a lot of money to get this into the hands of people to, to take the, the medicine, and it'll make them more religious. That's what they said. Um, the opt it's called Optifaith. The Optifaith, you know, yeah, he gets it. The whole advertised title of the conference was 
Applications of OptiFaith in National Security Circumstances. I got a poem of uh, personal survival. The dark specter deftly slinks away from the grim chamber, leaving black mold in each crevice and fold, its trail transforming into rotting tar, covering all of the mind. All perception plunges into a flaccid squalor of self-loathing. Desire drowns in a pool of apathy, creativity consumed by frustration, spirit mired in anger. Until the daisy appears. A small ray of sunshine beams to the forest floor, proliferating into an emerald forest of pines, mosses, and ferns. Cool glacial waters trickle between stones, playing nature's piano for the meditating hobo. The specter retreats to the void, but shouldn't be forgotten. The remissive parasite plots deep within a dense thicket of neurons, waiting to take its host another time. This is swimming upstream. I've always wanted to see the black bears fishing for salmon swimming upstream to spawn. There's something heroic about thousands and thousands of salmon having the instinct at the same time to return to the place of their hatching years earlier. It's a journey fraught with obstacles, not the least of which is the very stream that gave them life. The current is strong and rails against their efforts to return upstream. There are boulders blocking their progress, leaving only a narrow rivulet to pass through. Waterfalls require they fling themselves time after time into the foam until they finally get up and over or are dashed on the rocks below. There are man-made dams, native fishermen, eagles watching from the snags of giant pines, all waiting to swoop down on an unsuspecting fish so close to its de destination. And the final trial in this gauntlet of swimming upstream to the shallows to procreate the next generation of salmon are the black bears. They wait on the rocks, needing to fatten up for the long winter hibernation to come. The huge teeth, long sharp claws, snagging as many fish as they can, eating only the roe of the females for its high fat content. The survivors that complete their heroic journey guarantee the survival of their species. I want to stand on the bank and cheer them on. So I'm going to read a desert survival kind of poem. We see a lot of bobcats on our property, um, all different sizes, shapes, and patterns and colors, and we get to observe a lot of what they're doing. So um, this is a bobcat poem, Big Bobcat Eating. She heads uphill with her kill, a cottontail dangling from her jaws, settles down by a juniper and gets to work, tears flesh from skin, devours everything inside and leaves the pelt behind, flinging it about as she downs the last bits. One last toss before she abruptly stalks off, one last glance toward the binoculars inside the glass door. She's had her dinner. She'll keep the curl in her tail a day longer. Soon we'll sit down to salmon long dead, cooked and sauced, while she follows her route into twilight, 
than blackness, where hunger is raw and perfectly clear. I've recently been reading Stephen Dunn, and I, I, have to re, I have to remind you of a, of, a, of a little rhyme, which is, Jack and Jill went up the hill, fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. Now, I'm doing this because uh, I'm reading Stephen Dunn, and the poem that I'm going to read about survival is about, is based on this little rhyme. And I didn't want you to go, wait a minute, what was that Jack and Jill thing again? Wait a minute, I didn't want you distracted by that. After. Jack and Jill at home together after their fall. The bucket spilled, her knees badly scraped, and Jack with not even an aspirin for what's broken. We can see the arduous evenings ahead of them and the need now to pay a boy to fetch the water. Our mistake was trying to do something together, Jill sighs. Jack says, if you'd let me, if, if you'd have let go for once, you wouldn't have come tumbling after. He's in a wheelchair, but she's still an item for the rest of their existence confined to a little rhyming story. We tell it to our children who laugh, already accustomed to disaster. We'd like to teach them the secrets of knowing how to go too far. But Jack is banging with his soup spoon. Jill is pulling out her hair. Out of decency, we turn away, as if it were possible to escape the drift of our lives the fundamental business of making do with what's been left us. Safe within the shell, the seeds of what we become when coyotes call at the door in the night. Where you'll find it, beyond the last footstep, when the wind whistles every word just long enough, if you listen. Unexpected blood and fleshy clots swirling in my toilet led to an evidence-based assumption, pregnancy. A hurriedly scheduled science-based procedure confirmed another unexpectancy. Miscarriage, nine weeks. Unwitting vessel to an unwelcome fetus, I'd never been more vulnerable. Hormonal imbalance created upheaval. My emotions a picture of diversity. Rage at male entitlement, their expulsions unregulated while feminine guards are threatened terror of that guest hidden inside for so long, relief flooding me with every flush of blood, envy of transgender women created without enslaving ovaries, repulsion at the past child's father, his touch a curse, defeat, exhausting and thick, cooing at me to swallow pills then rest forever under blankets, 
All at once, there is life and death within me. I'm branded woman. Thank you. Sorry. Behind the dimly lit kitchen. My 10th birthday, rain cheats the window panes, pelts the glass with taunting indifference. Springtime's late winter melee, and inside, alongside the yellow formica table, resting upon the glossy white windowsill, cradled in one of mother's fine saucers, playing host in mute acquiescence, a bean sprout pushes upward parting the soil in a red clay pot, a small shoot with one tentative leaf emerging into the soft-toned solitude, except for the presence of the boy, hunched in tender regard of green growth, life feeding on soil that rises granule by granule, the stalk contracting and pulsing upward, drawing nutrients towards some unknown fullness, the plant and the boy are still alive, boy concentrating on bean plant while sitting on a yellow vinyl chair. The tubular chrome anchored in half light where avenues of dental white tiles abide and butter softens within a cut glass coffin. There beside the yellow coffee canister, the boy gazes out at the larger world Wavy panes of rain-drenched glass frame the fluidity of a Monet peach tree, green leaves and sodom blossoms, weeping a deluge this Easter morning, a fallen halo of petals at the base of the tree beyond the dimly lit kitchen with its bean plant. This poem is uh, uh, Agenda, and it's written for, for this person right here, my wife. Agenda. Darling, this summer, let's walk down the spine of the, of the Sierra Nevada mountains, tightrope them on the John Muir Trail, despite the fact that the doctors 30 years ago said you would be in a wheel wheelchair today. I want to hike with you up through Evolution Valley, which everyone says is the most beautiful place on earth. So we can watch the golden eagles laze counter clockwise 100 feet above turkey vultures doing their counterclockwise dance. And I don't care if it means that I have to carry your gear. And later, I want to watch you paint your paintings and change the way the world sees a flower. Even though when we talk about art, so many people raise their eyebrows and look away. And I don't care if they're laughing either. I want to go with you to that spot in Big Sur where all those people would never go anyway and stare at you while you sketch until I can tell you're uncomfortable, and then I'll pretend not to stare, but we'll both know. Let's listen to jazz music no one else likes and go to movies everyone else calls pretentious. I want to go back to London with you and take us both to Kyoto for the first time. I want to learn the language of the Tongva people and go back to college when we're 60 to become the archeologist Indiana Jones dreamed us into. This spring, I want to sit on a train with you in the Mojave Desert and sip dirty martinis, watching for coyotes to poke their heads up out of the scrub and smile at us. They get us. They understand. And even if they don't, I want to listen to, to them with you if they sing the, the stars awake. Right, thank you. I plan to do a little 
uh, event for Border Kindness, which is an organization uh, locally uh, put together by a friend of ours named Yolanda Brown. If you don't know Yolanda, then maybe you'll get a chance to meet her sometime soon. And now the letter from Yolanda. Dear friends, my most sincere apologies for my absence today. Thank you for the invitation to speak and for your support of border kindness. As we continue to stand up and fight back for our migrant brothers and sisters at the border, I ask that you remember that it is your generosity that allows us to do the work that we're doing. We continue to provide approximately 1,000 meals on a daily basis, free medical care and medication for families, distribution of clothes and personal care items, support for the shelters themselves, uh, free transportation to court hearings in San Diego, and most re recently, administrative and legal services. Finally, may we be strong together, may we reject hatred and racism, and not falter in our support for our brothers and sisters. Thank you very much. And if anybody is interested, um, we're collecting donations at Beatnik right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'm going to read a passage from Station 11. At first, it seemed inevitable that the National Guard would roll in at any moment with blankets and boxes of food, that ground crews would return shortly thereafter, and planes would start landing and taking off again. Day one, day two, day 48, day 90, any expectation of a return to normalcy long gone by now. Then, year one, year two, year three. Time had been reset by catastrophe. After a while, they went back to the old way of counting days and months, but kept the new system of years. January 1, year 3. March 17, year 4. Year 4 was when Clark realized this was the way the years would continue to be marked from now on. Counted off, one by one, from the moment of disaster. He'd known for a long time by then that the world's changes wouldn't be reversed. But still, the realization cast his memories in a sharper light. The last time I ate an ice cream cone in a park in the sunlight. The last time I danced in a club. The last time I saw a moving bus. The last time I boarded an airplane that hadn't been repurposed as living quarters. An airplane that actually took off. The last time I ate an orange. Toward the end of his second decade in the airport, Clark was thinking about how lucky he'd been. Not just the mere fact of survival, which was of course remarkable in and of itself, but to have seen one world end and another begin. It's called water. Ever so simple, once flowing between fingers at the turn of a knob, bathed and smelling fresh. Tablets, bleach, boiling, nothing to it. God once said, I am the taste of water. Now brackish, strained through a t-shirt, removing the obvious grit, doing nothing for the taste, doing nothing for disease, doing nothing to the parasites, 
doing nothing for thirst. So it's called the wedding ring in the glove box. One of the birds, the female, waits at the top of the fence like a piece of good news in a mail slot as the other threads in and out of the fence until it reaches her and the two suddenly fly into the air in unison, two hands clapping for joy. They move on to the next section of backyard fence and repeat this ballet until they're close to the kitchen window where I'm standing. Peterson guide in hand, my thumb unconsciously falls on black-throated sparrow, white eye bars and dark throat patch, a match. My thumb gives the wedding ring a habitual twist and I think they're coming together and we're coming apart. Since we're going to an event together today, it would be a good idea to take off our wedding rings. I don't. Over dinner, you show me your hand, no ring. I take, off, I take my ring off and put it in the glove box of the car. Like a good couple, we're in sync, even when we aren't. Now I'm at the kitchen window looking for the mating birds, but they're gone. My thumb feels for the reliable edge of the ring. The raw, empty space in my finger surprises me still. Okay, thank you. Does anyone else want to read who has not read yet? No? Um, I figured I would close us out by reading one of my pieces in this new uh, issue of Choi and Needles. Um, this is a piece I originally wrote on the eve of my 50th birthday because it occurred to me that I had a couple of things to say about surviving 50 years on planet Earth. And literally nobody was asking, but I decided to say it anyway. <laughs> it's called Listen for What I Don't Say. Sometimes I wonder if I have the face of a woman who needs help. I am frequently offered advice. I do ask lots of questions, and I can see how that might seem to some like I want answers. Probably I'm just being polite. Or I'm after your stories. I want to get you talking so I can watch. I want to hear what you don't tell me. Keep talking. I'm not listening, but I am. Now, days before my 50th birthday, I look in the mirror and see a face with deepening lines, silver hair, and eyes that have seen love and marriages and travel and motherhood and shitty jobs and rescued animals and exhilarating art and my own writing published and grief and failure and a second solo cross-country move that finally convinced me that I might be kind of a badass. I see the face of a woman who has a word or two of advice to give, in fact. Not that you asked. So go ahead and ignore me, or listen for what I don't say. Number one, lighten up, Francis. Humor is a survival skill, especially in dark times like these we've lived since November 2016. Some of us can't stay afloat without it. Humorlessness is tiresome. It does not prove your commitment to the resistance. In fact, since humor disarms and draws others in, it can be a useful tool. Not everything is a fight to, to prove your position is the correct one. Life is hard and brief, 
So maybe just crack a smile. It's good for you and the rest of us, too. Two, I would prefer not to. It's okay to say no, and you don't even have to come up with an excuse. No to going to that thing you dread. No to small talk with that acquaintance you don't trust. No to gatherings where you're expected to play an old role. No to staying where it's safe but not happy. You deserve joy in every shade of the spectrum. Comfort, safety, friendship, support, bonding, duty, desire, lust, and everything in between. Move towards joy always. Move away from anything less. Three, it's going to be a beautiful wall. You're the architect of your life. Get your hands on those blueprints ASAP. Construct your present, add on, renovate, tear it down to sticks and start over. Point yourself in the direction of a future you'd like, but understand it's like a note added to a dinner reservation. Quiet table by the window, please. We regret to inform you that requests are not guaranteed. However old you are, you've been hearing it all your life, how things should be done, what you ought to do and in what order, how you must behave, has it occurred to you that it might be bullshit? You have one chance to experience life. Take a big bite, a wide view. Be a good enough friend to yourself to build and fortify your boundaries. Make them beautiful, opaque if not transparent, sturdy. Four, people are strange when you're a stranger. It's not wrong just because it's unfamiliar to you. We all have a different way of being in the world. Notice your resistance. When you feel defensive, you're bumping up against one of those shoulds you were taught and maybe believed. Breathe, listen. You too can live any damn way you please. Thank you. Um, uh, well, I really appreciate Thank you to Rich for letting me take over the mic. Have you ever wondered why people live in the desert? I'm Dawn Davis, and I host Desert Lady Diaries podcast. It's a weekly conversation with women who found their home in the Mojave Desert. Each week, I talk to women who were either born and raised in the desert or felt called to come here and what the desert means to them. You can learn more about the podcast and listen at DesertLadyDiaries.com. Let's see if it recorded. <gasps> it's still going. That was a great half hour. Susan Rukeyser introduced the party, then Rich Seuss gave a poem of thanks. Mike Stillman read from his historical novel in progress about Joshua Tree during the Depression. Dave Maresh shared his story about Optic Faith from his novel Fixer Upper, written in 2007. Ernest Alloy read a poem of personal survival. Bonnie Brady read Swimming Upstream. Cynthia Anderson also mentioned salmon in her Big Bobcat Eating. Rose Baldwin shared Stephen Dunn's poem After. Peter Jastermski read To Sharita. Laura Berry read Unexpected. Greg Gilbert read Behind the Dimly Lit Kitchen. John Brantingham shared his love poem, Agenda.
Teddy Quinn introduced us to Border Kindness and shared a letter from its founder, Yolanda Brown. Marie Bobbin read from Passage from Station 11. John Paul L. Garnier read Water. George Howell read The Wedding Ring in the Glove Box. And Susan Rukeyser closed us off with her essay, Listen for What I Don't Say. Thanks for listening to Troy and Needle's show, and we'll see you next time.